Yeah, the Russians in France. There's a good chapter later where Trotsky gives some some real details on that one. That one is very interesting and kind of like a, a microcosm of like the whole situation. And it's and it's absolutely nuts what happens because obviously France is not in the middle of a revolution at this time. It's it's Russia, so it's like you have revolutionary troops basically in the middle of a non-revolutionary country. So there's a very interesting dynamic that emerges and uh, incident that happens there, which we'll get to eventually. But yeah, that that's a very interesting uh, little event that happens. Yeah, I think I think some of the fun stuff there too is the fact that like the the soldiers they're like, okay, you know, we've we've just had this revolution, that's awesome. So now we're going to replace all the officers, right? And and then the uh, all the higher ups in the revolution, the executive committee, and everybody's like, no, you're just gonna keep those same officers. And the soldiers are like, uh, okay, well we have all these complaints about our officers. Can you can you guys take care of that for us? You know, make sure that uh, our officers aren't beating us anymore. And you know, no, no. And the, the, we we can't do that. Yeah, the, no. the Soviets like, you know what? We hear your complaints, and our suggestion is to uh, bring your complaints to your officers. <laughs> your your suggestion has been noted. Yeah, basically. And it's just like, wait a minute, what? What? And I think Trotsky mentions the soldiers are like asking themselves, well, what? What did we even make this revolution for? If we're having the same officers, the war's still going on. What? What was the point? They literally just traded out. The czar for the prince, basically, and they're like, I, that that really wasn't worth having a revolution for, you know? Yeah, it's like, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna ask these officers to stop flogging us while they're flogging us. It's like, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure they'll be really receptive to that. Yeah, and there's it seems like. Uh, oh, sorry, you... I didn't want to take over. Yeah, yeah, uh, for the adult. A lot of soldiers didn't exactly like the answer that you complain to your officers. See that apparently it does around the Baltics just what the kind of guilty officers. Yeah, that's the other thing too, right? Like and in, in some divisions and regiments and depending on where, like the if the officers were particularly belligerent and didn't kind of like bow to the revolution, the soldiers were actively either imprisoning or just outright shooting their officers, depending on how the officers responded to the revolution. So, like, the officers, yeah, Based. they could they could try to hide it, they could try to conceal it, but it's not like they had any ability to actively oppress it at that point. And if they did, the, the power was still with the soldiery, basically. Yeah, it's like, uh, it's, ki it's kind of like, um, in that way, it's a it's a mirror of the government pre-revolution. It's like, well, we know we know it's here, but we're just gonna try and like do everything we can to either ignore it or just hope it blows over and goes away. And in both cases, that has proved to decidedly not be the case at all. But I guess that's what you can expect from a landed class who has just never really had to think about anything other than their own self-interest. Yeah, and that's another... It's like, oh, well, well, waking up in this beautiful, rich mansion has worked for me. I don't know why they're so upset. Well, why would we want to change the fact that I wake up in a beautiful, rich mansion, right? <laughs> 
But that is an interesting point you brought up earlier too. That like the um, the landed class is basically what makes up the officer ship. And Trotsky remarks that what Russia had was basically a feudal army and not really a modern army. And he he talks a little bit right. about how what what he means is that. It, with a feudal peasant army, you just kind of the peasants are just fodder. You just send them off in waves forward, but you can't really do that in an era of machine guns and trenches. Uh, warfare didn't work that way at the time. Um, you, you needed uh, a more modern, updated bourgeois army where the it, it, to lack of a better word, Trotsky talks about like it, it, the expression of personality and like initiative and coming up with creative ways to solve these problems it's it's not like you can just throw bodies at a trench because they're all going to get machine gunned down you have to come up with with novel solutions which is where world war ii kind of had the tank warfare which kind of uh eliminated the need for, or the utility of trenches really so they came up with a, a modern solution right. to the to the idea of trenches and machine guns and things like that. And Russia just couldn't do that because they were fundamentally a feudal and peasant army. So that's kind of interesting. Although, to Russia's credit, I think everyone involved was like, oh, yeah, just throw tons of people at this problem until they were like, oh, I guess we really can't do that anymore. Bring in the mustard gas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you said earlier, too, again, kind of on the subject of the fact that the uh, the landed class makes up the officership, Trotsky remarks that, um, he, he said, there's a quote that, like, uh, the army is, is a copy of the society that it serves, and I think that's extremely accurate mm -hmm. during times that the army is a conscript army and not a mercenary army, because if you have a mercenary army, the army's going to select itself a little bit better, but if you're conscripting during a time of war, you kind of have to take up. You're getting, you're getting everything that's in your society, whether or not they want yeah. to be there or not. Yeah, so. you're not having like a like a Blackwater mercenary group where you're going to kind of attract a certain type of person and a certain type of class interest into the the mercenary society. You know, a certain type of person that likes to uh, be you know. from a bridge. <laughs> but I feel it's an important kind of clarification to make, especially today where mercenary armies are kind of the the rule. Well, I guess not anymore with the Ukraine with the situation in Ukraine and Russia. They're definitely conscripting people there, but Yeah. Yeah, I actually just uh heard about that how and I know we're getting a little off topic, but Ukraine's just like, Yeah, uh could you come into your nearest recruiting station and update your personal information for just some completely inconspicuous paperwork and definitely not in a blatant attempt to, like, update your draft cards. Yeah, you gotta take a hard pass on that one, thanks. <laughs> but, like, mm, you know, I have a doctor's appointment that day. I can't do it. Yeah, I, I saw... Uh, uh, drifted a little bit away from the world, look. Okay, the world. The, the world thing about how conscripts really... It reflects upon society. It's probably the reason why the U.S. is never going to do the world drafting again, unless there's so absolutely fucked that the country is going to collapse anyway. Because us, history shows us that the last time that uh, they had a war with the draft, I think that they almost kind of had the 
It will not be revealed on that. That's the crazy thing, too. Like, even... Let's see. Yeah, there there have been several instances where during railway uh, railway worker strikes that tr uh, Truman specifically threatened the strikers with a draft. They're like, "Look, we're gonna draft all you strikers if you don't if you don't end your strike," you know. And the unions kind of folded on that threat. They're like, "Oh shit, we gotta call off the strike." But really, it was the time to escalate the struggle. It's like, "All right, you want to do this? Let's do this," you know. Like I feel like that's the time. Like, all right, and enjoy not shipping anything. Yeah, and it escalates the question, too. You're you're literally putting, just like Trotsky remarks in this one, where the striking workers were sent to the front, so all that did was agitate the front. It's like, okay, you're going to put the most, the, the current most organized and militant workers, and you're going to train them in warfare and put them in interaction with the rest of the army. It's not really a good strategic move from the bourgeois perspective if they're making a long thought there. Uh, so that's that's like, oh shit, yeah, let's do that. Yeah. Yeah, and if like you just send all of your workers to the front, then who's going to be the workers? Because even even if you do send everyone to the front, like the men and the women, it's like all you're gonna have left is the children. Although I guess depending on where you are in the U.S., that's probably not gonna be much of an issue yeah, anymore and anyway. You bring that up, and I, I lately I've been tying everything back to Civil War and Reconstruction era America because that's what I'm reading about outside of this. But that was one of the big advantages that the South actually had during the time of the Civil War is that. They could draft and send white men to the front, and it barely affected their labor capacity because most of their labor was done by slaves. So, yeah, most of their yeah, labor so they were was able not to, like, white. In mass, draft and send people to the front, and it didn't affect their backline logistics at all. So, the North was kind of, which also just, which also just makes me giggle a little bit when, at least, at least now, especially in. Not so much in my family, but I've heard it. It's like, oh well, the Irish were slaves too. It's like, sweetheart, no, they, no, they were not. They were, they yeah, were not. A little different than what happened to the, um, the Southern slaves. Yeah. So chapter fourteen was also a lot about more people's relation to the war. In this case, it was the the ruling group in the war. So Panda, you want to try and take a crack talking about that a little bit? Why not? Why not? Uh, let, let me tell you to remember the course. <laughs> I, I did read the chapter. I did, did read it, but, but uh, it was a little over an hour ago, and I did re refresh. But from what I remember, the word chapter summarized is essentially a lot of people, or the kind of places where they themselves, okay, we, on the one hand, we kind of can continue the war or because the world is the best. On the other hand, continuing the war is the only way we, we can possibly calm this down, extract the people, or perhaps put things back on track, make sure or that uh, this don't escalate and all of that. So basically, in Russia, as they, in, in the World War, as an attempt to, to you know, throw a little bit of little thing right there and had the uh, uh, students of revolution, you know, go off. Not go off in the essence of, you, you know what I, I mean, that 
extinguish the flames and all of that. Uh, so, obviously, that was the uh, Liverpool position where they came to war, and uh, where they came to the board or socialist kind of, of forces, and the uh, charter said, say socialist in a general manner, including the SRS and the Mensheviks. It was basically the matter between the camps of the uh, patriotic socialists, is at the uh, civil war left, and basically the patriotic socialists wanted to continue the war, and the civil war left did vote, both of them and were even in the really committed and revolutionaries. They were, I think, uh, uh, we should vote, we're not actually going to do anything to stop this. So, oh yeah. Uh, Kind of everyone in charge who, who was able to take a stand and took a stand in the okay with I doubt that the, the civilians and the soldiers don't want to continue the war, but we're going to continue the war. That said, that said, I think it was also this chapter that mentioned all resolution number I want that basically to vote to the soldiers. Yes, and allowed them to, I don't remember if it allowed them to uh, pick their own officers, but uh, at least it allowed them to, you know, oh, be, be able to have some kind of legal guarantee to say, okay, you can't feed us anymore, you, we are going to uh, be, be treated like shit outside of, of you know, the working enough for us anymore, or we don't have to start a new project where and we don't in a little a moment of fight and all of that. Basically, it kind of had to throw a, a lot of the soldiers, and even then, immediately they tried to create a resolution number two to kind of say, uh, yeah, re resolution number one is no longer in effect, but uh, kind of probably impossible. Uh, at the end of the chapter, as you mentioned, that uh, I can't remember who it was. I think it was Plekhanov. Basically, made a little show manifesto saying that we are continuing the war because we want peace. And we can have peace until the Germans are defeated. Of course, also, you need to, with some kind of smart sounding reasons. I mean, obviously not, not from our point of view, and probably not even from the point of view of, of someone with a little a bit of knowledge, as even back then, but for the average person, it kind of sounded like a bit of a, a yeah, yeah, pro-peace resolution, even if it is used as a justification for continuing the war, and even if at least a, a voice the Bolsheviks, who were kind of taking positions at the time, and even this, I said, yeah, yeah, this is fine with us. Yeah, it sounds like you've got this chapter. I mean, that was a pretty good summary. The liberals are, like you said, they, they kind of want the war to go on, mostly just to crush the revolution. They're like, we can't 
because Trotsky talked earlier about how the liberals were even talking about maybe making a separate peace uh, with Germany because they knew they couldn't win the war. But now that the revolution's kind of in control of the country, they're like, well, shit, let's wreck the country because that means wrecking the revolution. And we don't want this, so we'll continue the war just so we can lose, basically. And uh, there'll be some examples later where people will just out and out say that they want... Uh, the, the Germans to come in and discipline the revolution and just basically take over and they they just like it, it's really funny to me because they're they're constantly the ruling class of Russia is constantly saying oh you're a German spy you you have German interests whether that's to the previous czar or the Bolsheviks whoever they're throwing the accusation around at but then they themselves wind up being like God I hope those Germans come in here and destroy the revolution and it's like wait a minute you guys are the ones who were complaining about German influence, and you're trying to get the German influence in here. It's all projection. One thing I think is important to take from this chapter, too, is less political and more structural. Stru yeah, structural. Um, he talks about... I'm going to find it just so I can read it there, there's a three-way yeah here it is there, there's a three-way bond that was made between the soldiery and the soviets basically the the regiments would send a representative to the soviet that the soldiers elected so they had a representative in the soviet who is kind of contacting back and forth expressing interest from the uh, from the regiment to the soviet and the executive committee of the Soviet also sent commissars to the regiment, and they were in charge of all political affairs within the regiment. So the officers lost all political control over their regiments, and that was uh, tied in with Order Number 1, like you brought up. And then at the head of all of the regiments, they created an elective committee, which was basically just a, a miniature Soviet for that regiment. That was also kind of in charge of like uh liaisoning with the the commissar and letting them know what's up in the in the regiment so there's this really tight bond actually starting to appear between the soldiery and the soviets uh because we we may recall from earlier stuff that the the workers are trying really hard to bind themselves to to the soldiers because that's they, they remember from 1905 that that's where their revolution failed before was not having the soldiery on their side so they're trying really hard to bind themselves to the soldiery, which is uh, the peasantry in Russia. So the, they've got this kind of nice structure going on where there's constant contact between the Soviets, which is basically the workers, and the soldiery, which is basically the peasants. So they're really binding themselves to each other. So that's interesting to see how that like actually played out structurally and organizationally, uh, not just in the abstract political sense of, oh, these two classes needed to get together. Well, how did they do that? And this is how they did. I kind of liked seeing that uh, specific concrete example of how they did that. But yeah, order number one, you mentioned that. That was a really important one, too, like you said. And that just... Uh, it set it up so that the, the weapons are no longer... Uh, in the hands of the officers, that the soldiery and of the regiment themselves are now in charge of that. Uh, like uh, it didn't let them elect their officers, but it did get them to elect the um, representative to the Soviet, and then of course the Soviet would send the commissars back. So they had basically a say in their own commissars. Um, Yeah, order number one was good stuff. And then, yeah, like you said, the the patriotic socialists, you had those two different uh, groups of socialists, which at this point are 
people who have been crying against the war this whole time, but now that the revolution is kind of in charge of the country, they're like, okay, well, don't we have to defend the revolution? So we should be fighting this war, right? But they kind of ignore the fact, either consciously or not, that it started out as an imperialist war, so it's not a war for the defense of the revolution at this point. That comes later during the Russian Civil War. They're still fighting an imperialist war. They're just using the red cloak of the revolution to kind of disguise it, hide it, and get the soldiery and and everybody on side for continuing the imperialist war, basically. And And then, yeah, you have the Bolsheviks who at this point are Basically, they just lack a spine at this point. They're they're kind of just like, eh, yeah, we probably shouldn't do it, but they they're still kind of going along with this war. So like before Lenin gets there, even the Bolsheviks are going on with continuing the war because they they're less consciously than the other groups. I think thinking that oh, we have to defend the revolution. That that probably was a more pure motive on their part, but. It, it's still not uh, correct because, like I said, the, it was it was still fundamentally an imperialist war. Uh, it hadn't yet actually become a war for the defense of the revolution. But yeah, no, I thought that was that was a really good summary you gave. Thank you. Thank you. Let's see. I'm looking here at the end of the chapter. Yeah, it looked like there was um. Also, like this kind of attempt between the the bourgeois and the actual Soviets, the the compromiser socialists, they're they're kind of contesting for control of of the the front, the army and stuff. And so there was a congress of delegates at the front, and the Soviets sent their best people, and the liberals sent their best people, and like at the hall everybody was on the side of the soviet people so the bourgeois are just like ah okay we're, we're not gonna win this one they just kind of had to go along with all of the soviet resolutions that they adopted and such which were patriotic still but they had very socialist flavors to them which the bourgeois was trying to kind of get rid of yeah it's kind of funny how Oh, it is weird about the, the end of the chapter, like, oh, this is going to be something that's about to, to be really relevant next chapter for sure. Or it's going to be about the, oh, not, or the liberals yeah, for the, the, like, um, in that, that. The other second. interesting thing is, too, that, like, you know, the Soviets win this overwhelming uh, support at this Congress and everything, but Trotsky remarks that, like, this has terrified the, the leaders of the executive committee because... Again, these are people who are trying to hand the power back to the liberals, and they keep constantly winning all this support from from the soldiery, the peasants, the workers, in any any group of the quote-unquote masses. They're always winning massive support, which means the power is in their hands, so they're like terrified that this revolution is going to break out beyond the bounds that they think it should stay within. Um and that's that's kind of where we're going to get to with these next couple of chapters. Lenin's going to get back in the picture, and the Bolsheviks are going to get a solid program to fight for. And it'll stop being such a confused mess. If if it's if 
Yeah, if it's felt confusing so far, it's because at the time everything was confused. Mess. Like everybody's kind of just like feeling out what's happening and there's no real clear line being expressed by anybody until the Bolsheviks uh, adopt the April Theses of Lenin and then there's a clear fight to be had. Yeah, it's it's like that um yeah, there you go. DJ Khaled meme. They're suffering from success. I like to this is um this is subtle, something that Trotsky does here uh in, in the fourteenth chapter, which if you don't already know, then it'll simply just pass on by. But the organization Trotsky belonged to at the time, because he was not a member of the Bolsheviks or the Mensheviks, was the, and I'm not going to say it right, it's like Mezhryantsai, Mezhryantsai, yeah, we'll give that a go, we'll, we'll say that's how you say it, but um, he mentions them in chapter 14, and he's he, he mentions them with respect to how they feel about the, um, the war, and he says, uh, the quote there is that, in order that the aristocrats and officers shall not deceive you, choose your own platoon, company, and regiment commanders, except only those officers whom you know to be friends of the people. Uh, and he's like, but we, we got silenced. You know, he doesn't say we got silenced, but that was his group. So he's like, we got silenced. You know, Nobody wanted to hear what we had to say. We were trying to decry against, against the war. Uh, and he even associates that group. He's like, this group that I can't say, is an organization very close to the Bolsheviks. You know, he's trying to <laughs> stay associated with the Bolsheviks. <laughs> a little piece of shit. Yeah, he's trying like to be slick. He's trying to be slick. If you don't know, you might not see that <laughs> kind of unconscious. It's pretty deliberate. The deliberate bias there, um, which I don't mind. It's whatever, but, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I remember reading that I questioned myself, huh, why does this little group that I never heard anyone ever talk about before get a little mention here? Were they actually prominent and just under yeah, the cost? Ah, because they were two of these guys. That makes sense. Book, but they are in E.H. Carr's 14-volume History of Russia. He mentions that Trotsky was, yes, the head of this this group. I'm just going to call them the Mez. Trotsky was the head of the Mez. And when Trotsky and Lenin both got back to Russia from their uh, respective exiles, they were... Trotsky was the head of the Mez, and Lenin's obviously head of the Bolsheviks, and they meet up, and they realize they pretty much have the same program as each other, and Trotsky wants to merge the two groups. He's like, look, you get all the people from your group, and we'll, we'll merge with my group. But Trotsky's group is, like, super tiny, so Lenin's like, are you kidding? Just join us. <laughs> and Trotsky's like, we can't join you because the Bolsheviks have been previously advocating to continue the war, so you're going to have to, we, we need a new organization because your your organization is tainted with, with this stigma of the fact that you've previously advocated for continuing the war. And Lenin's like, has the way bigger organization. So he's like, nah, we're not doing that. And Trotsky had to join the Bolsheviks because his group had no chance of competing with the Bolsheviks. 
So he was at least mature enough to realize he needed to join the Bolsheviks at some point. He kind of swallowed his pride on that one. Uh, but he was definitely angling to make a new organization with Lenin. And Lenin was not going to have that. So that's kind of funny. A little, little detail there. Uh, I, I started to wonder how, how many times I'm moving forward I were, while reading this book. We're going to we'll have to we'll take a little at this is Trotsky kind of making in his own look better. I, I, I started to wonder how many times we're going to have a, a little discussion about that because I think it is. This I'll is say the, that second, moving forward, oh, there, there is another oh, thing I'm going to call out that I know in advance, but for the most part, honestly, I feel like Trotsky tries to downplay his own personal role that he played in the revolution, and I'll point that out too. He happens to be the leader of a committee, and for the most part, you, you see that he's not shy of using people's names, like Rodzienko or, or just whatever. He's dropping names all the time. But whenever he refers to himself, he very rarely uses his name. He more often will say... Well, he'll say the leader of the Military Revolutionary Committee... Or he'll says say the author. he'll say it like that. Like he won't use a name. He'll refer to himself as the leader of whatever, and he won't drop the name. Like he'll drop the name one time just so you know that it was him, but then he doesn't ever bring it up again. It, it's almost like he's trying way too hard to be modest, so you kind of overlook the fact that he's been in charge of this for a while, actually. Ah, yeah, because I've so noticed a few times in the preceding chapters, like, because I, I think in the beginning, like, it mentioned that he had another writer help him with this book, but uh, maybe I could be misremembering, but there have been a few times in the chapters where it's like, oh, the author, the author, the author. I'm like, yeah, he, he, I think he goes with Trotsky. We know it's you, those, man. Those the There's no other author writing this writings book. Post-1917, he... In my opinion, way overemphasizes Lenin. Like, Lenin's super important and everything, but I think he way overemphasizes Lenin just so he can try. Because obviously, the main accusation and argument between Stalin and Trotsky is like, you know, Lenin favored me. No, Lenin favored me. So Trotsky kind of kisses ass to Lenin posthumously, and he's like, oh, yeah, Lenin was this great guy. Look, look, I wrote that Lenin was a great guy. You see that? He's, he's on my side or whatever. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. So I feel like he overemphasizes Lenin's role, and in doing so, he also downplays his own role, because he's not trying... He would get painted with the brush that he's trying to steal credit for it if he did it any other way, I think. So there's a bit of the contemporary search, uh, search, uh, situation that he found himself in that bleeds into the book a little bit. Yeah, yeah. It it just bleeds kind of in a like little a bit. thou dost protest to too much methinks sort of thing. All right. That being said, I think we've definitely exhausted talking about that chapter for sure. Um, so next week we can do two more chapters. I think they're reasonable length for that. <laughs> uh, 
look at how dances we had to hey, don't mind that. Right away, right away. Uh, so, sorry to bring this back off when it was the pre-book discussion, conversation, on the loud stuff, but for a moment, think about having to survive right. winter in somewhere though, like Russia like after winter, in winter in is a good season. Late. We're, we're deep into the global warming. You know what I'm saying? Winter is a good season because in global warming times, you're not you're not getting a severe winter like they used to in Russia. You know what I mean? Yes. Exactly. Yeah, but no really. Like, on, okay, man. fine. Winter Come in Russia, on. Winter back in, in Russia has gone on strike. those years. Yeah, that would suck. Okay, I'm not going to argue <laughs> with that. That would suck. Uh... But I mean, even now, like yeah. places like Minnesota, it's like just a little cold. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I think you guys, I don't know. You you two probably live somewhere where, for some reason, or, or you don't know what we are called and that's why you do or don't mind and winter that much. Here, if the weather says area, we don't want and we taste that, and we also know that in Patagonia it's even cold other than so how people live there, we don't understand how. Right, uh, cool. But yeah, yeah the two chapters we have to read next week, the they seem fair enough. They seem fair enough. In the party, with the party, of course, being the Bolshevik party. So once, once the Bolsheviks get their ducks in a row, kind of we'll move from setting up the pieces again to how the board plays out. Uh, so that'll be kind of more interesting, too. And we'll also get to see kind of the actual practice of, okay, now they have a revolutionary program. How are they maneuvering strategically and tactically on the political playing field with this program? Because that's pretty interesting to see and fairly instructive as far as, like, you can adapt kind of these sorts of things to, to modern-day uh, tactics and programs and things. Interesting, because, and I remember when we started this, you mentioned there was going to be a lot of, like, setting up the pieces early on, but I kind of forgot you said that until, like, these last two chapters. I'm like, man, where the, when the hell is this backstory going to stop? But I think it does a good job in contrast to, like, modern retellings of the, like, revolutions and civil war in that I think a lot of that context is just kind of, like, condensed into a chapter or two, and then it makes way for, like, the meat of, like, what people really want to read, but it doesn't really give them, like, an in-depth uh, context for all these individuals and organizations. Because, like, I, I tried reading um, another book, and I can't remember the author, but it was basically kind of just, like, like, just a bunch of people and organizations right after another, and then, like, the next chapter was like, okay, now we can, now that you've learned all that, now we can dig into it. I'm like, wait, hold on, what? So this has definitely been, like, a more, while it's definitely, I think, a little drier, I think it definitely uh, adds a bit more context to the people and names and organizations than, I guess, your modern scholarly retelling. 
I don't know, I don't know. Uh, I hate that this book keeps making me do this, but I have to defend Antioski in the sense that this is a, a do, not only necessary, but I would really say it's dry. I, I think that even if it's a bit more of a backstory thing than the main national thing, it's, it's really interesting to me. Now, to be fair, to be fair, I will admit I'm the kind of guy that will listen to a six-hour podcast every week about the history of a single Western card. So I understand that I I am a little bit more of a there when it comes to the little details that I go into the most of minus minus two things and other stuff. This book, but I don't know. I don't think that this is book also by Trotsky, which is called The History of the Russian Revolution to Brest-Litovsk, and we'll read the whole book just because it's only four chapters long and they're pretty short. But the purpose of the book in the curriculum is to get us from 1917, because this book ends right in October of 1917. It does not go past that. His history, his other book that I just mentioned, takes us all the way up to the uh, Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which I think is pretty important. But he also tells the history in this book, which is obviously a huge three-volume book. So I think it would be interesting for us to kind of think about how much backstory he's given in this and how deep and thorough of an understanding you get from 1917 from this book and try to compare it to this other book that he's written where he's basically just told you what happened. Like, there is still background to it and stuff, but, like, it's it's four chapters long, and it's, like, these kind of chapters, you know? And he covers the same time period. He covers all of 1917 and then up to uh, the Brest-Litovsk thing. So it, it, it'd be interesting to see, like, you know, does he do a good enough job in that book? Or, obviously, he'll be limited by his space and stuff, but, like, how, how did he do, you know, as as compared to with all this background? Is it still very intelligible you know because i totally feel what you're saying about like i'll I'll read books sometimes on historical subjects and i'm like the author is just assuming that i know about these things already and i do not and that's why i really like this book by trotsky he assumes you do not know a thing about russian history so he will tell you all about it and all about the different groups and all of their logic in decision making and the individuals and the people so it's it's kind of a self-contained book where other times i feel like if you want to read something on a specific historical subject you got to like read several and like put pieces together from here and there this one this one's kind of got it all You have to have like a Wikipedia tab open so you can quickly yeah. like you need some just kind of reference be like, material. oh, this okay, is this the is reference that material. Is. That's in what this case. is. It's kind of nice. I mean, Wikipedia being what it is, but yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. I know, I right? Imagine, it, like, it really makes me regret that I didn't know World everything when I was already like, in high school, school you know? Like, well, just go actually, back and be like, Trotsky no. said. <laughs> because, like, in high school, like, especially with U.S. history, it's just, like, the same kind of, like, oh, like, the first Thanksgiving, the Civil War, Reconstruction, uh, the Gilded Age, World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, Watergate, 
and then like depending on like how far your class goes to like the 80s and it's and that's it i feel like you've left it's out like, the wow, inordinate okay. amount of time um, they spend on that's like that's like America, 175 years like 1600s like, to 1776 like good god how much of that useless information i know is unreal war crimes Yeah, like uh, like King Philip's War. Like, a ask your average tenth grader who the hell King's, what the hell King Philip's War was. Okay, okay, but uh, I hate, I hate to the defend that, but at least you guys know, okay, the whole, all, all the uh, country was formed and all of that. Here in Argentina, we learned uh, that uh, the Spanish came in like the. Fifteen uh, hundreds or whatever, and we skipped straight to okay. Uh, we started rebelling in nineteen in ten because of events that happened. Uh, sorry, sorry, in eighteen ten because of events that happened in nineteen oh five. Like the first one hundred years of, of whatever colonization, we have little zero clue about what happened there. It's um. I don't know if either of you have seen the movie Encanto, but I like how a point in that movie is um, the the grandfather. The Colombian Civil War. Uh, I'm not entirely sure because I had to watch it for work because we had a movie night where like people could just come and watch it in the amphitheater. And like a point is is that the the husband of the grandmother is like gunned down, and it's heavily implied to be either contract forces or like uh, just like anti-agitation u.s forces and i was like wow we just damn okay disney okay uh that's a that's a point you put in there that's okay uh, we're allowed it, to do that uh, this is starting to become a real podcast because we have totally totally god of rare <laughs> <laughs> Now we're getting into the meat of the thing. Now we're talking about the revolutionary principles of the movie Encanto. Uh, if this right, continues, well, with, yeah, so yeah, I want to become just a, good, a clone we of can, the uh, Deprogram. Yeah, yeah, it sounds good. It sounds good. Uh, probably all not. Right. I'll, I'll leave the at the beginning. I'll, I'll start it where I say You're going right, to go out of the last 10 minutes. I mean, you really? This is like very... I, I'm not making this editing into a project. I still gotta read the chapter for volume 2. Oh. <laughs> ah, you going to go to the opportunity? Uh, what a shame. <laughs> Nah, yeah, every every time I see you make a announcement about Capital, I'm like, man, I really should learn how to read, like, really start reading Capital. But every time, I'm just like, volume there's one no way in hell I'm good. not volume I'm going two to read this without is, some sort of, yourself. like, just companion or, Every like, word you read, you're like, why, Marks? Why are we doing this? And he's like, oh, we're going to talk about this even more. And you're like, no, just just stop. You wrote enough already. This is good. You want to hear a crazy take? You want to hear a crazy take I saw the other day? 
So then what are what do all three and I know this is very off topic, but what do all three uh volumes so volume deal with? Are they just kind of like continuations the of the other or do they have specific It starts by giving you uh, like the basic categories of political economy, uh the commodity, use value, exchange value, labor, blah blah blah. I'm not gonna list them all, there's a lot. Uh, and then it talks about how capital is produced, and it talks about different ways and means that capital is produced, uh, how to increase the amount of surplus value by lengthening the working day or by shortening the amount of time that the workers spend producing their own necessities. He makes it concrete and gives specific historical examples. He talks about how capital expands, how capital contracts, uh, but mostly it's looking at the production process of capital and it's looking at it from the abstract angle of value he doesn't transcend to the concrete category of price at this point volume two stays with these abstract categories at the level of value and then looks at the circulation process of capital so we've moved from production over to circulation which is complicated and a pain in the ass uh, volume 3 synthesizes Volume 1 and 2 and brings it to a more concrete level and translates all of the previous phenomena into the level of price and how they actually appear in our day-to-day -day life. So some people try to argue that there is a contradiction or um, antagonism between Volumes 1 and 3 because Volume 3 says that price does a certain thing when volume one says that value does a different thing. And it's like, well, no, it's just once you translate value into price, it behaves differently. So volume three is kind of like volume one on a higher level. The way I've seen it described is actually, if you're familiar with math, calculus one is your basic calculus. Calc two is complicated as fuck and differential equations, and everybody hates those things. And calc three is calc one again, but in three dimensions. If, if you have any kind of math background, that's kind of how capital works, too, where nobody likes volume two because differential equations suck. But once you bring regular calculus into three dimensions, it's, it's not too bad after you've done differential equations. Hopefully that helps. Yep, yep. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm. And shout out to Keiki for dropping by and listening in. Hey, yo. What? See you later, alligators. Yep. Take care. <laughs>